invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, which is perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible in the estimation of many believers down through the centuries. And we will take up the second half of that chapter, verses 18 through 39 this morning. The truth and affirmations that we just sang and uh, the affirmations that are declared in our passage this morning are like the Mount Everest in our Christian experience. This is where all believers united to Jesus Christ are supposed to brought, be brought up to. And indeed, the sheer force of the logical flow of Paul's teaching of the gospel uh, certainly brings us to this glorious summit. And so we finish our study and series uh, through Romans 5 through 8 uh, this morning on this mountaintop of gospel assurance and confidence. It was exactly six years ago uh, when we did this series as a church on Romans chapter 8 back in 2017. Uh, I preached seven sermons through this entire section we are about to read this morning. Uh, rather than drilling down into one small individual segment, uh, I want us to take the whole thing in one swoop, and I want us to look at the whole mountain range, as it were, uh, from verses 18 through 39 this morning. So let's uh, uh, prepare to hear God's word, and before we do so, let's implore our God and seek his help and blessing as we turn to his word. Let us pray together. A gracious God, we... Uh, implore you with eager hearts, remembering how you have bountifully dealt with our souls in the past through the preaching of the word, and we expectantly wait upon you once again to shower your blessings upon us as the word of God is opened. Oh, send your spirit upon us, O oh living God, and strengthen our soul inwardly with life and vigor that flow from your throne and multiply peace and joy and love among the brethren in the knowledge of you. Lord, as the rain comes down from above and water the earth and make things grow, so we pray that your word would do the exact same thing spiritually in our midst and not return to you void. So accomplish your purposes, we pray, and conform us more and more into the image of your beloved Son. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 8 will begin in verse... Um, 18. Hear God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, thanks be to God that he has spoken to us in his word. Well, the gospel is a saving power of God, and through these middle chapters of the letter to the Romans, Paul's been bringing the waves of gospel truth and assurance upon believers. And Paul doesn't want that tidal waves of the gospel to stop beating on the shores of your mind and your heart, wave after wave. The indicatives must be washing ashore and pushing you and propelling you further up. And that's the way to live the Christian life. And that's the way how Paul, the clear thinker, but all the more superb pastor, has been dealing with our souls in the gospel. He doesn't want that movement to come to an end. And it is in Romans chapter 8 that these tsunami waves of the gospel are all converging to bring you up to a mountaintop. Waves that are strong enough to bring you up so high, almost into the territory where no man dare go without a plentiful supply of oxygen. It's as though we are climbing into the stratosphere of the mystery of gospel purposes where we behold the immensity of the glory of God in salvation. And from that high ground, uh, we are then enabled to look down and see the horizon of our day-to-day experience. From up high, it is as though Paul is helping us to canvas the whole universe to see whether there are any questions of doubt or accusations that dare to rise up against us. And from that high ground, almost as it were caught up in the glory clouds of gospel security, Paul then goes on to shout them all down and bring you to a further height of security. What the Apostle Paul stresses here for our assurance is essentially the single truth that we are God's children who are destined for glory. 
the issue of sanctification that he's been expounding in, this, in these previous chapters, our ongoing battle with indwelling sin, the reign of grace over us, our having died to sin and our being no longer under the law and its condemning power and the indwelling spirit in us, all these glorious truths are be here being brought under the overwhelming doctrine that we are indeed God's children who are destined for glory. Now, Paul anticipated this emphasis back in chapter 5, verse 1, where he began and where we began our series several weeks ago. Paul said, if we have been justified by faith, we not only have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but we also rejoice in hope of glory of God. And the verse right before our passage, uh, Romans 8, 17, begins to pick up that note once again and provides the bridge into our passage And Paul says, if we are children, then we are also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Salvation means not just forgiveness of our sins and acceptance with God, but having been justified, we are adopted positively as children and made heirs in the family entitled to the inheritance which is being kept in heaven for us. And we are heirs of the glory which we will one day fully inherit and fully enjoy uh, one day. And the Christian life, therefore, is then to be lived with a prospect of glory. Paul goes on to expound here. And the question is, how does the future glory, this future destiny of glory, bear upon your Christian life in the present? How does the fact that you are a son and daughter of God, destined for glory, bear upon everyday living uh, here below? There are three anchors that Paul sets before us in our passage And the hymn that I made reference to in the sermon last week, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken, it's number 513 in our Psalter hymnal. The last line in stanza four of that hymn says, Think what spirit dwells in thee, what a father's smile is thine, what a savior died to win thee. And I want to follow those Trinitarian lines again as gospel anchors of our assurance. Or to express them directly from our text, I want you to see three verbs that Paul uses in our passage. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider, Paul says, I reckon or I count, the exact same word used in the sanctification mindset expounded in Romans 6, 11, counting yourself as dead unto sin and alive to God. Paul says here something I count, I consider, I reckon to be true. Because the spirit who dwells in you is the down payment and first fruit of glory. Because the spirit has brought a touch of glory into your life as a Christian believer. So then I count the present experience, even the sufferings of this present time in the light of the glory to come. I consider all things in the present world accordingly. And that's the first line of thought and anchor I want to explore, the indwelling spirit who is the down payment of glory. But then in verse 28, Paul says, uh, we know. There's something that we know. We know the Father's predestining eternal purpose for believers, which is glory, which is your conformity to the image of his Son. And so we know that all things work together towards that end. We know that God is for us. He's working all things for good unfailingly and this is what paul confesses we know god's eternal purpose and therefore god is indeed for us 
then finally down in verse 38 paul says i am sure he ends this chapter with a strong note of confidence and says i am convinced or i am persuaded i'm sure of the love of jesus christ think what a spirit what a savior died to win thee he will never lose you through all things in life we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and i'm sure that nothing will be able to dislodge us from the love of jesus christ so i want to look at these three gospel realities and affirmations and anchors indeed and i want us to look at each of them together with you briefly first there is something for us to consider for to reckon to count look at verses 18 through 27 and paul says salvation introduces us to this strange phenomenon of three groanings that will go on until the day of glory and if you're a child of god you are also caught up in this unavoidable orchestra of groaning god's creation paul says in verse 22 has been groaning as in labor pain the whole creation has been subjected to futility corruption on account of sin it is a world filled with curse the environment that we live in is post-fall world we live east of the garden of eden and so it's infested with thorns and thistles there are things like disease natural disaster disharmony death all around us that bring a measure and note of frustration to you in life in this world it's not an ideal environment for children of god destined for glory and yet it, it, it is into this kind of world that jesus christ came he lived a life in such a low condition and united to jesus christ uh, god also has a purpose as you live in this created order and god has a purpose also for this creator created order itself because the whole creation as he says is eagerly waiting the image that the language conveys there is that of straining or stretching out its neck to see something that it cannot otherwise see and the creation is waiting with that kind of eagerness for the unveiling of the children of god in the resurrected body of glory which will be the event in the new heavens and the new earth and until that point the creation groans as with the pains of labor in childbirth and paul says the creation itself one day be liberated so that it can be the perfect backdrop for the revealing of the sons of god one day there will be perfect life life that you yearn for but cannot attain fully in this world but until that day in that new world when there will be no more pain no more mourning no more tears and death not only the creation groans but paul says we also verse 25 who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly this is an experience peculiar only to christian believers because the spirit who dwells in you is like the down payment or the guarantee of the glory to come the spirit with whom you have been sealed unto the day of redemption has been given to you and through the spirit there has been a deposit of glory into your life when by faith the spirit comes to dwell in you and so you groan because of the distance and disconnect between what we already are and what we are not yet this isn't the kind of sinful grumbling 
of unbelief that we read about in the Old Testament. God's people in the wilderness grumbling in their unbelief. But this is a groaning that comes from a truly godly desire not yet fully realized. There's a tension in the heart of every believer. We've been made alive, raised together with Jesus, but our body is yet subject to decay and weakness. We cannot serve God the way we want. We want to be rid of sin. We have died to sin already, but yet sin still remains in us and expresses itself from time to time through the body. The gap between your delight in the things of God and in the saints and on the one hand, and your distaste for the things of the world grows more and more as you grow. And so you long to be with the Lord, yet you are away from him in the body. We are children of the Most High, but the world does not recognize and know us. It's a kind of distance that you feel acutely as believers invaded by the glory of the world to come that produces groaning inwardly within your experience. And the godlier you become, the deeper that groaning will be. Because of the sheer gap between what will be true of you one day and what this world represents. You are the children of the Most High. You have been adopted by the God of glory. And yet, if you think about it, this world knows nothing about your glorious inheritance. Nobody ever comes up to us to ask for an autograph or for a selfie because you belong to the God of glory and you are his beloved child in the way that it goes after its celebrities. If anything, life in this fallen world is filled with trials, tribulations, sufferings, all manner of experiences that seem contradictory to our standing before God. And left to ourselves, we would be discouraged and devastated. But in the meantime, Paul says there is a third groaning introduced into the experience of a believer. Paul says the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness with groanings too deep for words. That means when we do not know what to pray for, in the midst of trials, in the sheer mystery of God's providences in our lives, when we don't know where even to begin to pray, at times events that overwhelm us and muddy our spiritual eyesight, in our weakness, the Spirit, the Helper, comes to our aid And right into the midst of confusion and weakness and suffering, he comes with his mighty power and he intercedes for us according to the will of God. That's the third groaning Paul mentions here. And it is according to the will of God that the Spirit will intercede for you. What is God's will for you in any particular situation? What the Bible makes one thing clear, God's will for the saints is ultimately the same. It is sanctification, which is the will of God for you. It is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in you. It is to save you from sin. And so that's what we first and foremost consider as believers. Even sufferings, even our weaknesses, all manner of experiences that this world introduces into our conscious awareness. All those things cannot compare with the glory to be revealed to us, Paul says. And indeed, I consider even the sufferings, the worst experiences cannot compare with the glory 
to be revealed to us. We have the unchangeable hope of glory, but we also have the present help of the Spirit in this world. So we have the first fruits of the Spirit already. And because you have the first fruits, Paul says there will be a full harvest of it one day. And until that day, the Spirit will always be your helper and intercessor. Let's just think of, uh, think of the marvel of this experience, believer. You have the Holy Spirit of God. If the Father sends His Spirit to do that for you, precisely in your moment of weakness, then there is absolutely no possibility that He will ever let the weakest of His children go, as it were, drop to their knees and wave the white flag. The Spirit will always come to help the believer. So fix your eyes on that day of glory. Let your thoughts be occupied and preoccupied with the Lord Jesus, whose glory as it, were, as it were, will roll over to you in the twinkling of an eye when you see him. Paul says here in verse 18, it's the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when speaking of the momentary and light affliction producing within us an eternal weight of glory, Paul says in that verse, it's a glory to be revealed in us. What is Paul talking about? Is it glory to be revealed to us or is it glory being worked in us? And the answer is it's both. You will be glorified the moment you see the Lord Jesus in his uh, returning glory and as it were, his overwhelming glory will roll over into your being and you will be transformed into the likeness of his glory. And consider the present then in the light of that Christian hope and know that the Spirit will help you as you ponder that hope in moments of weakness. So consider that glorious gospel hope and direct all your groanings, all your sufferings to that hope of which the Spirit has come as the guarantee and down payment. And you can do that, brothers and sisters, because there's something, Paul goes on to say, that we know. Verse 28, it's a second verb. We can count, reckon all things in the present, in the hope of glory, because we indeed know God's eternal purpose towards us. We know that God, the Father, has predestined us for adoption as sons to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Knowing that purpose then, knowing God's eternal purpose, we do know that all things in life work together for good towards that predestined end. And we know that the Father is never against you. In Jesus Christ, he is always for you. Now notice the golden chain of salvation uh, in verses 29 and 30. God's purposes that span from eternity past to eternity future, this is an unbreakable reality Paul says, God foreknew you. God knew you beforehand. The word there, to know, really indicates the idea of fellowship of love as the husband knows wife. God knew you in love beforehand or he foreloves you. What Paul is speaking here is God setting his love upon you from all of eternity. And the God who foreknew you then predestined you to be with his son and to be made like his son 
He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his own beloved son. And in time, he called you. He called you out of darkness into the fellowship of his son. He regenerated you by that voice calling you to come out of your spiritual deadness and grave. Then he justified you, Paul says. He justified you, counting your sins not against you, but against his son who died on the cross bearing your sins and crediting Jesus' righteousness unto you. And if he called you and justified you, verse 30 says, he also glorified you. The final consummation of your salvation is as sure as though it had already happened. So he puts it in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The roots of your salvation go right into the eternal heart of the Heavenly Father in love. And if that's the case, if you know God's predestining purposes for you, then you know two things and you can confidently rest in these two truths. First, verse 28, Paul says, we know that all things work together for our good. If the Father's purpose is unchangeable, we do know that all things work together for our good. What an assurance that is for the saints. Because this statement about the extent of God's providence has absolutely no limitation. God's sovereign superintendence of our lives involves absolutely everything. Nothing that happens can distort or destroy God's eternal purposes toward his people. Everything works together for good because it is God who works everything for the good of those who love him. It is a comprehensive reality. It encompasses all things. It works out synergistically. God works all things together even things in and of themselves evil and bad. And it is beneficently so he works those things for your good, for your benefit. In the same way, a sculptor might see what's inside a block even before he begins. The same way a sculptor might envision the final product before he begins chiseling away and chipping away. So God sees his own son in you for the day of completion. God chips away. God removes anything that is foreign and contrary to the family traits to which you are called in Christ. And that's what his sovereign providence is producing in the lives of every single one of his children. Things that are absolutely evil, defy experience, things that befuddle you to no end. He deploys them all sovereignly in order to glorify his son in you. And if you need the proof of that, look no further than the cross. The words that came, ever came upon a man the cross on Calvary became an instrument in the hands of the Father to not only do his son good, but to bring blessings to a countless multitude. And the same God who is wise in his sovereign power is also doing the same thing in the lives of his children. We know all things work together for good. But then secondly, we know that God is for us 
He's not against you. He's bringing you to glory. You are his beloved, blood-bought child. Even when he disciplines you, it is in love, it is for your good. He's never, never against you. He doesn't crush you. When he wounds, it is in order that he may heal you. And Paul says, if God is for us, then who can indeed be against us? There is no condemnation now coming from him. God is not out to get you. He's not out to condemn you and to curse you, to crush you. How can he ever be wrathful and angry towards you when he put forth his own son as the propitiation? How can he ever remember your sins against you when he counted them all against his own beloved son on the cross? How can he ever allow any created being to bring any accusation or charge against you that can stick when he sent his eternal son, the creator, to be your righteousness, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, constantly interceding for you? How will he not graciously give you all things that you need when he has not spared his own son but gave him up for you? God spared Isaac and Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22, but on the same mountain, God did not spare his own son who had to carry his own tree to that place of execution where he would accomplish your redemption. And if it cost God his son to procure your salvation, he will never, never, never let you go. He will generously give you all things that you will ever need to finish this pilgrimage. Because his name is indeed the Lord will provide. He is for you. He's not ashamed to be called your God. I simply ask believers this morning, do you know your Father's smile towards you in Jesus Christ? Do you know the Father's pleasure towards you in Jesus Christ? And that is all because your salvation ultimately, ultimately isn't God's ultimate purpose. It's only God's proximate purpose. Because God's ultimate purpose in saving you is for his Son to be Glorified for Jesus to be preeminent and exalted for Jesus to be the firstborn among many brothers, as Paul says in verse 29. And when you know that eternal purpose of God, it begins to anchor your Christian walk. Come what may in this world, in your life, nothing can bring you out of the joy and peace of fellowship with your Heavenly Father because you know that all things are working together for your good. And God is indeed for you. And so think what spirit dwelt in you. is the first fruits of glory with whom you've been sealed unto the day of redemption. Think what Father's smile is yours. God is for you. He has accepted you in Jesus Christ, working all things now for your good so that his own beloved son may be further glorified in you. And thirdly, thirdly, think what a savior died to win you. Look at the third verb, Paul says in verse 38, with a strong note of affirmation, I am sure, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded. Now the Apostle Paul's been posing a staccato of questions, almost as it were to the entire universe, daring anyone to answer these four questions that all begin with the inter interrogative, who? Who is it to condemn? Who is to bring any charge? But 
look at the last question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Look how Paul takes the last five verses to answer this last remaining question. Why does Paul linger on this fourth question? Well, it's because this is where the rubber meets the road. You can doctrinally address the previous three questions. You can get the theology right in terms of the doctrine of justification, in terms of Christ's accomplishing salvation. You can get all those truths right, but be still plagued by the question of separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When bad thing happens to you, the passing thought that does he really love me? And here Apostle Paul is addressing the heart and every heart indeed needs to be reassured that the love of Christ is indeed yours and nothing can separate you from it. Notice how Paul lists seven possible threats and adversities that seek to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love. Things that you can encounter in this world. Look at the list beginning in verse uh, 35. The first three, tribulation, distress, persecution, these Pressures that can press you down, creating inward agitation, outward fear, the sufferings of this age. The next two, famine and nakedness, being deprived of the basic necessities of life in terms of food and clothing. And the final couplet, danger or sword, even the risk of death for being a Christian believer, being given over to be slaughtered, as Paul quotes from the psalm. And Paul says, in these things, in any of these conceivable providences, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, Paul uses a compound word there. Literally, he says, we are more, more than conquerors. He says, we are hyper-conquerors. We are those who super-overcome. The promises of the uh, of the Lord Jesus in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, to those who overcome, I will give these glorious inheritances. And here Paul uses the prefix hyper to bring out an even glorious triumphant note. And he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. The providences of God are wonderful things when you look back and when they're in the past. But Paul says, when we are still in the present, he doesn't say after these things, but he says, in these things, we are more than conquerors. When you are secure in the love of Jesus Christ, you can just about face anything in this world. And the, expand, uh, the list expands even further. Paul goes through every corner and crevice of the universe and says, neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation. Nothing in heaven or on earth can successfully separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the height of assurance that Paul is brought here. And this is a truth that he is being persuaded of that there is nothing that can successfully dislodge him or any other believer from the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I am sure, I am convinced, I am persuaded of it. Paul spent much time here because 
This is a focal point in the Christian life of Satan's attack, being assured of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And you need the preaching of the gospel to persuade your heart inwardly of the love of Jesus Christ for you. That all the sinister powers of darkness and hell cannot separate you from divine love. The thing cannot ever be done. The love of Christ is stronger than death. And you are more than conquerors in that love. God will no more let go of those, who, those whom he loves in Jesus Christ. God will never let go of one single believer in Jesus Christ. Then he will let go of his son Jesus. Because it's only in Jesus that he loves you. And so the gospel tells you of the love of God that is, ever, that is everlasting and unchangeable and unchanging. The everlasting God has staked his love for you upon his eternal love for his Son. And this is where the saints of God dwell all the way to glory. There is no higher ground if you are an adopted son and daughter of God. And the question is, are you truly convinced of it? Are you sure of it that no matter what happens, that nothing can successfully diminish God's love for you or dislodge you from the strong grip of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one place in the entire universe where you are persuaded of that reality. It is when you see the cross, when the, where the Son of God laid down his life for you. It is there that the believer becomes certain and is sure and is persuaded. It is there, the Apostle John says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us and indeed that God is love. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Greater love no one has ever shown this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if, I do, if you do what I, what I command you. So, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel summit you are brought to. Your security in the love of God in Jesus Christ. And living in the hope of glory by the Spirit of God, who's been given to you as a deposit of that glory of the world to come. But the secret is, you don't bring yourself there. You don't go up there. You don't climb yourself to that summit by your own efforts. But rather, the gospel, as it's expounded, as waves of God's truth come to you, it's almost as though those strong currents of the gospel truth take you up to that mountaintop. And when you are brought to that mountaintop, you do indeed consider all things in this world in the light of the, the, light of the glory to be revealed. And you know beyond a shadow of doubt that the Father is for you and all things work together for good and you are convinced that you are secure in the love of Christ. That's the high ground where the Apostle Paul leaves every believer. There is no higher ground for you, except, of course, one further summit Paul will bring us to at the end of chapter 11 in Romans. From him, through him, unto him are all things, to him be glory. 
there is no higher summit for Christian believers justified by faith, adopted in grace, indwelt by the Spirit, can live their Christian life upon than this Romans 8 ground. You are secure in the love of God. And it's, of course, from the vantage point of that high ground. It is by standing on that high ground that you go on being sanctified and you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's the pattern of Christian living, as Paul expounds to us. May God write these words into our hearts to produce within us that pattern he has declared in the gospel. Let's pray together.